How's everybody doing this morning? Why don't you guys uh, bow your heads with me for a word of prayer so we can invite the Holy Spirit to be involved in what we're doing this morning. Lord, uh, this story that involves Jonah teaches us so much. I pray that you just uh, shape us and mold us today through this story. Help me to preach your word accurately, God. I pray that I would not bring glory to myself in any way, shape, or form. Help me to have the humility to understand it's all about you today. Any kind of bias I would have, any kind of selfish intention, I pray that you would just get them out of my system. It's all about you. I pray that we would have an attitude as a congregation that would say, this is all about you and nobody else. We love you and we praise you. In your mighty and precious name, amen. So back in August, I went to visit some family in the Midwest. I also went to visit some friends in the Midwest. So I first went to Wisconsin. Then from Wisconsin, I took a train to Iowa to visit a buddy of mine. And I was coming back from Iowa on a Friday to get to Wisconsin. And my train ended up being three hours late to Iowa, which was crazy. So I ended up getting home about three hours late. And on top of that, I was supposed to fly out the next day to go back to D.C., and this is really dumb. I ended up getting a flight where I had to fly from Milwaukee to Chicago. And if you know geography really well, there's only about an hour and a half distance between Milwaukee and Chicago. So my parents live about 30 minutes south of the Milwaukee airport. So we go from south to north, and then I fly from north to south, which doesn't make a lot of sense. I bet you the flight attendant on that flight from Milwaukee to uh, Chicago, has to do a lot of squats in the off-season, probably, because you're doing a lot of sitting down, getting up, sitting down, getting up, because the minute you get up, you're landing. It's ridiculous. It was like a 15-minute flight, pretty much. But it got worse. The minute I got to Chicago, I look at the screen with all the flights, and uh, it said my flight was canceled. So I you know, went north and then I went south and then my flight got canceled. Luckily, you know, I was only like an hour from my parents' house. So I called my parents up and I said, hey, I'm taking a bus back to, you know, Kenosha, Wisconsin. And uh, so I ended up, you know, going back to Kenosha and it was irritating. I mean, I lived through it, but it felt like I was right back where I started from, pretty much. And as we look at this part of this uh, Jonah story today, it seems like Jonah is right back where he started from, pretty much, with his heart. And his intentions, pretty much. I'm going to give you guys a Cliff Notes uh, version of Jonah 1 through 4. Um, for all my baby boomer folks, this is the back of the cassette tape, VHS tape, if you want to call it. Um, for my uh, millennials, um, this is the C, I mean, the, for my millennials and uh, some of my Generation Xers, this is the back of the DVD. So I want to make sure I have all my generations covered here, pretty much. Okay, so basically, Jonah is told by God to go preach to the Ninevites. You know, the Ninevites are enemies of the Israelites. Jonah's not real excited about doing that, so he hops his ship, going to Tarshish from Joppa, and a storm comes upon, you know, the water where the ship is, and basically, uh, Jonah gets woken up by the men on the ship, and they're like, um, hey, you're a God follower, why is this going on? So the men on the ship, they cast lots to see who's been causing this calamity, basically. And they find out that's Jonah. And 
They really don't want to throw Jonah overboard. They're trying to do everything they can to not throw Jonah overboard, but they don't have a choice at a certain point, so they end up throwing Jonah overboard. And he gets swallowed by a big fish. He's in this fish for three days and three nights. He's thanking God, and, he, and he's promising to God, Hey, I'm going to be obedient to you. If you let me out of this fish. The fish vomits Jonah out. He's told again to go preach to the Ninevites. So he goes to preach to the Ninevites. It's like a three-day project. He tells them, in 40 days, you guys are going to be destroyed if you don't get your act together. And the Ninevites end up repenting. They wear sackcloth, which is like a sign of repentance in that culture. And they, they begin to fast. And God honors their repentance. And this is where the story gets interesting. Jonah's not real excited that the Ninevites had repented. Jonah's a little ticked off. You think he would be excited, but first of all, Jonah's worried that the history you know, of Israel is going to get to a point now where the future of Israel is going to be destroyed because he's giving the Ninevites a second chance. And the Ninevites were enemies of the Israelites. And he's also thinking, man, I don't like these guys. I want to see these guys suffer. I can't stand them. Why are you giving them a second chance? We see some of Jonah's frustration here in um, chapter 4, uh, starting in verse 2. He prayed to the Lord, O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to torture. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. He wasn't saying that because he was praising God. He's saying that because he's taken I'm like, I should have known it. Of course you're going to be compassionate. Of course you're going to give the Ninevites a second chance. You're slow to anger. See, I believe Jonah didn't understand the miracle of grace. Jonah didn't understand the reality of the miracle of grace. See, Jonah was given grace, but he didn't understand this grace that he was getting. See, I'm one of those ADD people. I love acronyms. We're going to go with an acronym today. We're going to take the word grace, and each letter represents what's involved with the miracle of grace. So we're going to start with the letter G. The letter G stands for giving grace. See, Jonah wasn't really hot about giving grace. See, he was given grace on a couple different occasions. First of all, he was saved by a big fish. Second of all, he was spit out of the fish. And then for a third time he was given grace because he was given a vine, right? When he was hanging out outside the city. When he was looking at the city and he's, he's like, okay, when are they going to get destroyed? Come on. When are they going to get destroyed? You know, he could have scorched to death, but God gave him a vine when he was waiting outside the city. And that's another way that he got grace. But Jonah didn't do anything with this grace. He didn't give anybody else grace knowing he got all this grace. You see, 1 Peter 4.10 says, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Grace is a gift. Ephesians 2 tells us that. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. Now this, this is not from your own doing. It's a gift of God. The Christian Jorgensen paraphrase version, but you get the idea. Grace is a gift. Each of you should use whatever gift you have. Because we're faithful stewards of God's grace when we use our gifts to bless others. Jonah was given grace. He didn't use his grace to 
give more people grace. See, a lot of us have messed up many times in our lives. We've done a lot of dumb things. I've done tons of dumb things. I've gotten pulled over twice. And I told them I was a youth pastor both times, and I got out of the situation. And I was shown grace both of those times. Even though I shouldn't have gotten any grace in that situation. I've seen grace in my own family. My brother, this past Thanksgiving, was at a rest stop, and he flung the car door open and knocked a car right next to him. It was a really expensive car, too. And this couple just happened to be walking right past us as this was happening, and they're like, Happy Thanksgiving, don't worry about it. Which was really crazy. We've all done stupid things, but we can't give grace to other people a lot of the time. It's okay for me to have it. It's like money. It's okay for us to get it, but we hate giving it out, right? We love to have it in our possession, but we hate giving it out. But sometimes giving grace is showing tough love. That's the other side of grace we don't always talk about. Sometimes grace is disciplining somebody. Sometimes grace is allowing somebody to go through some hardship so they don't face something more extreme. You see, Jonah was shown a tough love through grace when he was swallowed by the fish. He had to go through some hardships in that fish. It was probably pretty smelly. It probably was pretty dark. It probably wasn't really comfortable. But it was better that he got swallowed by the fish instead of living his life the way he was living his life, right? So he didn't end up having a life where he was totally far away from God. You see, I had to learn tough love through grace a few times. I failed my driver's test twice. And uh, I think God was saving me from getting some bad accidents, you know. So God was showing me grace in that way. Uh, I'm more serious now. I had a brother um, that got a drinking ticket senior year of high school. And he had to miss his uh, high school state baseball tournament. And he was one of the starters on the team. And that really hurt for him. But he learned that there's consequences for your actions. Something worse could have happened if he didn't get in trouble his senior year of high school. You see, sometimes we have to go through hardships through experiencing grace. Sometimes we have to allow other people to go through some hardships, through some adversity, if we want to show them grace. You know, for you that might be kicking your son out that's 40, that's eating Cheetos and not working, you know, to teach him some responsibility. You know, for some of you, that could be like grounding your five-year-old for a week because they lied. You're showing them discipline now so something worse doesn't happen later. That's the side of grace we don't like to talk about a good chunk of the time. The R stands for repentance. I'm still getting used to Virginia driving. It's crazy. It's like every man for himself when you're trying to switch lanes. It's just unreal. I still can't stand it. It's like do or die, pretty much. And uh, if you need to switch lanes, you better do it like an hour ahead of time. Because if you have to do it like a couple seconds before you got to turn somewhere, you're toast, pretty much. And I never get in the right lane at the right time. And so sometimes it'll take me going 10 minutes down the road to make a U-turn to get on the road that I need to be on. See, repentance is realizing, hey, I'm going the wrong way. I need to make a U-turn. I need to go the other direction. I need to follow God. I need to have a change of heart and a change of mind. Because I messed up. That's what real repentance is. It's having that change of heart and that change of mind. And you confess that you've messed up and you need to go the other direction. You need to face God. You need to follow God. 
A lot of people think Jonah had repentance when he went to the Ninevites after getting spit out of the fish. But I don't think that was legitimate repentance. Because I don't think his heart was in the right place. I don't think his mind was in the right place. There's a difference between obedience to God and repentance. There's a big difference between obedience and repentance. You can be obedient without being repentant. I think Jonah went to preach the Ninevites. He was scared that God would bring judgment on him again. He was a little scared of God. I think that's why he literally went to preach the Ninevites. I don't think he was truly sorry for what he had done. I still think he had a stubborn heart. I think sometimes we go through judgment and we're just worried about more judgment so we follow God. Or sometimes we're so worried about hell that we follow God. But it's not a legitimate, intimate desire to follow God sometimes. Repentance is a legitimate desire with your heart and your mind to follow God and to admit you've done something wrong and to admit you've had a horrible life. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Godly sorrow is recognizing you've messed up. It's having that change of heart, that change of mind. And your obedience is from having that change of heart and that change of mind. Worldly sorrow is, hey, oh my gosh, I messed up. I wonder if God's going to bring judgment. Again, I better follow him. That's where Jonah was. He was in the worldly sorrow category. Funny story, I was about 13, and I was really bored one day, and I saw some spray paint in my garage, and I said, why not just spray paint a bunch of stuff in the driveway, you know? I didn't have any horrible intentions. I was bored. I thought it would make the, the driveway colorful. So I, I make this huge peace sign out of red spray paint on our driveway. I've never seen my dad so ticked in my life. I saw the wrath of God in my dad's eyes. It was unreal. But I think I never did it again because I was scared that my dad would be ticked at me again like that. I, I don't think I had a legitimate attitude of repentance. I'm like, I don't ever want to see my dad like that again, so I better not spray paint the driveway. Some of us are like that with our Heavenly Father. It's like, I don't want to tick off dad again. I better be obedient. It's not because we're legitimately sorry. It's not because we're legitimately hurt. A lot of times it's like, I don't want to tick off dad again. I might get judgment, so I better do what he says. That's not the kind of heart we need to have. That's not a repentant heart. The letter A, assessing your desire for grace. This beautiful wallet of mine right here, I have a debit card and a credit card. For a long time, I just carried a debit card. I was always scared to have a credit card. I always heard the whole stories about credit cards. I always heard about people going into bankruptcy because of credit cards. I've always heard of people, you know, spending money on crazy things, getting this fat bill that they have to pay off. And I didn't want any of that. But years were going by, and my mom would always give me a hard time. You need a credit card in case there's an emergency, you know? Or if you want to get a rental car, you need a credit card. All right, get the picture. So I was home on vacation a couple years ago, and my mom pretty much held me hostage. She took me to the credit union and made me get a credit card, basically. But I, like, never use the thing unless there's an emergency. I remember being in college, and we got, like, three weeks' worth of absences. And I never got sick. And I always had this amazing idea that, hey, I should uh, take the last three weeks off of school. 
That would be awesome. I got all these, you know, absences. And one time me and my buddies were talking about in the weight room um, at college. And one of the, you know, high mighty seminary students said, I'm going to ask you the big seminary question. He was being very sarcastic, you know. Are these absences here so you can use them or are they there in case you need them? And that really hit me in a different way. I'm like, I never thought of it that way. Um, there was a pastor I was working with on my internship in college. And he said, I don't do this job because I get paid. I get paid because I get to do this job. The money's there because I need it, not because I'm doing this for the money. So a lot of times, in our desire for grace, are we like the person that's conservative with the credit card? Are we like the person that's like that pastor that gets paid because they need to get paid, not because they want to get paid? Or are we like that seminary student that has a mentality that absences are there because you need them? Or we like the crazy person with the credit card that just goes ape crazy and racks a big bill and almost goes into bankruptcy? Or are we like this crazy student like me who thought, you know, absence, or, um, just uh, days off were there as a, you know, something I could use, not just something I could fall back on? Or are we like the pastor that just does the job to get paid? You really got to assess your desire for grace. Jonah wanted grace as something that was like a charge card, just something he could use all the time and never feel any remorse when he did something wrong. And a lot of us are like that. This is Romans 6, 1 through 2 says. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And this chapter also talks about baptism. When we get baptized, we wash away our old life. We have a new life. We're dead to sin and alive in Christ. You're dead to sin. It's a nasty stench. You don't want to have anything to do with it. You're going to sin, but you're not mastered by sin. Grace is something to fall back on. It's not something that's there for you to use all the time because you want to use it. Because you're dead to sin, you have no desire to sin. You have no desire to use grace like it's a charge card. Because you're dead to sin and you're alive in Christ. You're dead to sin, and you're alive in Christ. Has anybody ever heard of a cheese called Limburger cheese before? In the Midwest, they eat a lot of it. It's a German cheese. In Wisconsin, there's a lot of Germans. Um, the stuff's like diapers, but it tastes amazing. It smells like diapers, but it tastes amazing, and it's so spreadable, and it's so soft. But the first time you take a whiff of that, you don't want anything to do with it. You have to be around it a little while. You know, you have to be in the atmosphere of this cheese for a while to get used to it. I think that's how we always sin. You know, when we first become a Christian, we realize how nasty sin is. And I think mentally we always realize how nasty sin is. But the more we get used to it, the more we get involved with it, we get used to the nasty stench. It doesn't bother us anymore, and we dig into it. It starts to feel good. It starts to taste pretty good. Just imagine if I dumped a bunch of smelly trash here on the stage, and I just started rolling around, and I just started, you know, taking big whips of it, and I just started licking everything in the trash. That would be pretty nasty, wouldn't it? That's how we are. We know that sin is nasty. We know it's horrible. It's like we're rolling around in it all the time, and we're always, like, taking a big whiff of it all the time. In our minds, we know that sin is bad. We know we're dead to sin. We know we're alive in Christ, but we always roll around in the trash. 
all the time. Because some of us think grace is a charge card. I got grace. It's all good. I'm just going to take a bath. So what's in your wallet? You know? Some of you guys got that. But anyways, you're dead to sin and alive in Christ. You have a repentant heart from grace because you assess your desire for grace. And you see that your desire is legit. It's something that you fall back on. It's not something that you use because it's there. The C stands for compassion. I'm going to read you guys a story. Actually, Matthew West made a song about this story. Matthew West's song is called Forgiveness. There's a lady named Renee Napier that's talking about the loss of her daughter. May 11, 2002, 24-year-old drunk driver, Eric, killed one of my twins. Megan and one of her friends. Sorry, Renee was one of the girls that was killed. The mother of Renee is saying this story. So again, 24-year-old drunk driver Eric killed one of my twins, Megan, and one of her friends. Lisa, both girls 20 years old. This was devastating for all three families involved, and countless friends that mourn the loss of these precious girls. But this is also a story of forgiveness and healing. My family and Lisa's family chose to forgive Eric. We even appealed to have his 22-year prison sentence reduced to 11 years. Since March 29, 2004, I've traveled all over the country telling this story to thousands of people, mostly teenagers. I always talk about forgiveness because we have learned how powerful it is for everyone. Eric told me he has his eternal salvation because of Megan and Lisa. I'd show him via video in my presentations and will soon have him as an inmate standing with me, a living, breathing example of the dangers of drunk driving, but also of the power of forgiveness. That's a huge example of compassion right there. See, the mother of Renee Napier, she didn't see some just horrible jerk that deserved to die. She saw a lost soul. She saw somebody that needed Jesus because she had compassion. She had legit compassion like Jesus had. We always see Jesus having compassion. You know, the Bible says Jesus had compassion as the people were, you know, like a sheep without a shepherd. You have that kind of compassion where you see souls. Do you just see people that drive you nuts? Do you just see people that you want to get revenge at? Or do you see lost sheep? Do you see people that are sheep without a shepherd? Jonah didn't have legit compassion. We see uh, Jonah complaining about this vine that withered away at the end of chapter 4. Because he didn't take care of the vine. And, And the Lord answers in this way. You have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? See, Jonah's comparing, you know, his issue of this vine with, you know, God's issue of these people not knowing the right hand from their left hand. What's the bigger issue here? <laughs> Seriously. But we're as stupid as you know Jonah is sometimes with our compassion. Sometimes we're more concerned about 
you know, the stupid things people do, instead of worrying about them being souls that need Jesus. People are always going to drive us nuts. People are always going to do dumb things to us. But do we have compassion to see these people as people that don't know their right hand from their left hand? Do we see these people as sheep without a shepherd? Because that's the kind of compassion that Jesus had. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. We're supposed to be compassionate to one another because Christ had shown compassion to us. Christ had shown compassion to us on the cross. He didn't have to come down and die for us. Paint says he humbled himself as a human. He was obedient, even obedient to death on a cross. Stupid stuff people do to us is nothing compared to the stupid things we do to Jesus. People were doing stupid things to Jesus, but he still decided to die anyways. He had enough compassion. He knew the people did not know the right hand from their left. And he knew the people were sheep without a shepherd. What kind of compassion do you have? Is it legitimate compassion? See, the Bible says Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. He didn't just die for a few, few people. He died for the sins of the whole world. I'm the king of eating at fast food restaurants. Can I hear an amen? Does anybody love fast food? I used to hate it, but then when I was living on my own and I needed to be on a budget, you know, the dollar menu was my best friend. You know, I love the dollar menu at McDonald's. I love the value menu at Taco Bell. You go to Subway, you get the $5 foot long. Taste and see the Lord is good. You know, um, but here's the thing. When you go to fast food places, you get a lot for your money. I figure if I'm going to pay... A price for food. I better get a lot for it. Here's the deal. I didn't think Jesus was just going to die for a select group of people. I think his mentality is, is if I'm going to put my life on the line, if I'm going to die, it better be for everybody. I'm not going to get ripped off. I better die for everybody because everybody is worth enough to have grace. you feel that way? Do you think everybody is worth enough to have grace? I know people have done a lot of dumb things to you. Some of you people have been molested. Some of you people have been raped. Some of you people have had a husband or wife walk out on you. Some of you people have had a mom or dad walk out on you. And you just want to see them suffer. You want to see them die, but they're still souls. They're still souls. They're sheep without a shepherd. I'm not saying you have to be best friends with these people, but you've got to have that compassion. We're not fighting physical battle here. It's a battle of flesh and blood. Ephesians 6 talks about that. Try to fight that spiritual battle with compassion. The Greek word for compassion in the New Testament that's used more than any other um, word for compassion means that you have this gut feeling, this horrible gut feeling. Does it make you sick when people die and you don't know where they're going? No matter what they've done you. Does it make you sick? Because if you legitimately have grace, you have that kind of compassion that makes you sick to your stomach. No people are burning in hell. But they did something dumb to you in your your past. This is easier said than done. I'm not saying I'm amazing at this. I'm a stubborn mule. We've got to have that legitimate Christ-like compassion because Christ had compassion for us on the cross. 
And people did horrible things to Jesus, but he died for us anyways because of his compassion, that gut feeling. He knew that people were going to burn in hell if he didn't do something about it. He said, if I'm going to put my life on the line, if I am going to give up my life, it better be for everybody. I didn't pay for people to be selective about their grace. I paid for so much more. The letter E stands for eternal thinking. I know a lot of you have not been shown grace in your life. Sometimes it seems like you've never been shown grace in your life. But here's the reality. God's grace is all you need. God's grace is what is going to last for eternity. Worldly grace is temporary, but God's grace is eternal. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12.9, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. His grace is sufficient for you. That's all you need. At the end of the day, God's grace is all you need. Chris Tomlin will annoy you with, your grace is enough, your grace is enough, your grace is enough, you know, but it's true. He'll throw four chords in there, too, for you music people. His grace is sufficient for you because his strength is shown when we see that all we need is God's grace. You know, in my life, this has been evident, you know. It's been crazy. You know, a few months ago, I had a horrible struggle with anxiety. I hate talking about it, but it happened, you know. And I was battling some spiritual warfare. I was just having some agonizing mental pain. I was worrying about things I'd never worried about in my life. And it felt like I was turning to everything besides God for a while. And it got to the point where I realized all I need is God. I would have a spot over here every day for about a couple months where I would pray because that's all I had. And I'd be on my knees. And I started to learn about the power of prayer. And my relationship with God was on a totally different level at that point in my life. I learned that God's grace was all that I needed. It took something like that for me to realize that. God's grace was all that I needed. That's all I could rely on. So when the world brings you down, when the world throws crazy stuff at you, when the world says you're not good, when the world says you're worthless, when the world says you don't need grace, because there's no way you're going to be worthy enough for it, God's grace is eternal. God's grace lasts. His grace is sufficient for you. You have to realize that you need to get to that point where God's grace is all you need. I saw a movie called uh, Do You Believe? Any of you guys seen that movie? It's a really good Christian movie. But there's a scene where the pastor, who's the main character in the movie, is driving home. And there's a guy with a huge cross blocking the road. And this is the dialogue that's going on. Do you believe in this cross, the man says. The pastor says, I'm a pastor. The street preacher says, you didn't answer my question. You see, this cross is bloodstained. What does it demand? The question is, if you believe what you preach. The cross is the reason we even have grace. The cross is the reason why we give grace, why we have repentance, why we need to assess our desire for grace, why we need to have compassion, why we need to have eternal thinking. Because that bloodstained cross took on all your pain and all your punishment 
and all your bruises. There's a song by Mercy Me that just came out called uh, Flawless, and it really brings this idea to life in the chorus. No matter the bumps, no matter the bruises, no matter the scars, still the truth is, the cross has made, the cross has made you flawless. No matter the hurt or how deep the wound is, no matter the pain, still the truth is, the cross has made, the cross has made you flawless. I don't know if you've been a Christian for a long time. I don't know if you've called yourself a Christian for a long time. Do you believe in the cross? At the end of the day, that is the biggest question you've got to answer. Do you believe in the cross? Because if you don't believe in the cross, salvation is meaningless. Grace is meaningless. Your life is meaningless. If you do not believe in the cross. Because that's why we have grace is because of the cross. Because of that blood-stained cross. Jesus took your mess. You don't have to have this mess weighing you down for the rest of your life. Because the cross has made you flawless. No matter the hurt, no matter the bruises. The cross has made you flawless. If you've never accepted Jesus for the first time, remember you have grace because the cross has made you flawless. In God's eyes, you are his child, and he wants to be with you. And the death on the cross has washed away your sins, so you do not have to suffer for eternity. As long as you take this free gift of grace, and you get baptized, and wash your old life away, and start this new life, because you're dead to sin, and you're alive in Christ. Some of you guys have been you know, quote-unquote, following Christ for a long time. And maybe you're having a, a rough time. Maybe you're struggling with whether or not you've even been a Christian in the first place. Remember, you can still have grace. The cross has made you flawless. If you believe in the cross, if you want to take the benefits from the cross, it's made you flawless. So you can have this relationship with God. You might be a legit Christ follower. Maybe you've been a legit Christ follower for a long time. You're just in a rough spot. Remember, the cross has made you flawless. If you believe in the cross, the cross has made you flawless. Because Jesus took on all your pain and all your hurt, so you don't have to weigh yourself down with all this pain and this hurt. We're going to have an invitation song. We're going to have an invitation. If you're just getting weighed down by life, and you need God's grace to cover you, if you need to think about that cross and what the cross means, we want to pray with you. Maybe you've never accepted Christ for the first time. And you want to accept this grace because of the cross. Because of this bloodstained cross. We want you to come forward.